the paragraph at the top of the page, the new paragraph, about six, seven lines into the page, on page 28, and if we're following in English, it's the word now uh, in the paragraph towards the beginning of the page. Essentially, what we learned last week, uh, Yankee and Nefraim, if you can, Yankee, please go into the kitchen now. Essentially, what we learned last week was that Rav Meshachim Lutzata explained that if we would take any one particular meter, any one particular characteristic of God, and attempt uh, a full definition of that attribute of God, we would run the run into the problem of of inevitably making uh, creating a distorted picture of God. And the reason for that is very simple. The reason is because any one particular attribute of God is far beyond our comprehension, if it's wisdom, if it's power, if it's compassion, if it's love, whatever it is, is way beyond my, my understanding in terms of its limitless nature. And therefore, the tendency of man is that even if he knows that his uh, definitions are limited to his extent of understanding, but the human being has the tendency of assuming something to be what it is within the parameters of how he understands it. Um, and therefore, uh, it, w- it would be very common for a person to say that if I can understand this and this particular thing that God said, it makes sense and God is wise. But if, it, if it's so deep and so, so involved that I utterly cannot understand it, the, the human nature of the human being is rather than to admit to awesome wisdom or sense any awesome wisdom because you can't make any sense of it, deep down the person is in a process of this is nonsensical, this just doesn't make any sense. Or it's not valuable because it's nonsensical to me or it doesn't make sense to me. And therefore, realistically, any one particular attribute of God becomes very difficult for us to relate to in its fullest extent because we can't relate to it in its fullest extent. So what do we do? We take it to the extent that we comprehend it. So that's automatically imposing a limitation on any one particular attribute of God. So therefore, what Rav Meshachim said was that the thing that uh, the aspect of God that we should focus on would be the aspect of Yehuda, his oneness, his singular nature, his uniqueness uh, in in creation. And obviously, the concept of uniqueness—what does uniqueness mean? It, it goes beyond the concept of God, just God being one. It means more than that. That there is one God and no second God or ten gods or fifteen gods. There's only one God. It obviously means more than that. Um, the concept of unique is a concept which is, is something that we're going to develop. We're going to develop exactly what we mean by the uniqueness of God and that the uniqueness of God is something that we can relate to better than trying to get a total definition of one particular attribute of God. In fact, I didn't mention it last week, and this is just, you know, uh, parenthetical in nature, but it really makes us wonder about ourselves a little bit. Rav Meshachim Lutzata has an entire book that recently was published. They're constantly publishing a lot of his manuscripts. 
that have been found, and there's a whole there's a whole organization that's dedicated to it. Recently, came out with a book which was 915 prayers, each and every one of them asking for the revelation of an aspect of God's oneness. Now, the, the nine, just in case you're wondering where the 915 comes from, Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses prayed 915 prayers, the numerical value of the word Ve'eschanan, to be able to enter the land. That was the, to, to enter Israel. The end was that he didn't enter Israel because God had reasons why he shouldn't. But he prayed 915. Ve'eschanan constructed 915 prayers so to speak, from all angles, begging God to reveal His oneness to the world. So obviously this topic of God's oneness and the different aspects and the different features of it is something which is, you know, could be a life endeavor to understand correctly. So obviously this is something that we're going to have to get into in, uh, in greater detail as we go on. But this is so much how much he said. And uh, what Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzata has developed also is he's trying to he's trying to support this claim by by chapter and verse. And essentially, what Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzata does is he brings verses from all over, from the Chumash, from the end of the Chumash, where Moses speaks about about what's going to happen in the end of times before Mashiach comes. Uh, and he brings constant references to the prophecies of Isaiah and Ezekiel and others which all speak about the ultimate goal, the ultimate bliss of the world being that everybody is going to have a recognition of quote-unquote this oneness. As if to say this is what we're all working for, this is where it's all leading to. How it's leading to there is the subject of this entire book. After he's going to maintain this, he's going to show how everything that's happening in the world is ultimately geared to this to this revelation of oneness to this understanding of oneness but essentially what he's trying to do is if all of the prophets and if Moses and if everything in scripture said speaks about that that time when the world will quote unquote arrive and the way that it's described is by the realization of this oneness obviously this is the central goal and the central fulfillment that a person can have as an individual if he can reach perceptions of this oneness. Now, what this oneness is all about, he still hasn't explained, but he's just trying to support the claim of the central place that this concept of God's oneness and uniqueness has, that all of Scripture, when it talks about the end of times in terms of reaching the pinnacles of closeness to God, speak about this concept. And this is what he's in the middle of doing right now. And he had brought, he had brought a, a verse in, in the paragraph that we learned last week in which it says, so that man should know the oneness of God. And now he's going to elaborate a little bit on that verse. And we're starting the new paragraph. And behold, when we look at that verse, <coughs> I believe it's a verse in, it's a verse in Isaiah, Yes, it's a verse in Isaiah and Yeshaya. What does it say? It says in the verse, if we, one looks at the verse carefully, it says, Lamanteidu, in order that you should know, Vesaminuli, and you should believe me, Vitavinu, and you should understand, Kianihu, that I am it. Right? Lefane uh, 
before me there was nothing, and no God, no power, and after me there is nothing, behold, it is me, the and just in case you're hoping for any kind of saving from any other source, forget it. Other than God himself, there is no other person that is going to save the situation, quote-unquote. Uh, almost the prophecy of something else. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but that, that's the verse in Isaiah, in Yeshaya. So now he's going into that verse, and he says, V'hine, l'man yeidu v'savinu ksiv. If you look clearly at the verse, it doesn't say you should know, which could just be a passing knowledge of something. What does it say? It says, Lamanteidu v'tavinu ksiv. It says, know it and understand it. Mashma, what does this indicate to us? Sharotza, that the, the desire is, Shaneda b'yediya v'havana, that we should know it knowledgeably, but we should also know it through a connection of really understanding it. You know, there's a certain amount of material that a person can know merely because it's an amassment of knowledge, you know. As you go through life, you pick up tidbits of knowledge. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you have any grasp or any understanding or any connection to it due to an appreciation of it. It's just something that passed you by and it made an imprint. But what the, the verse here is saying is you have to have knowledge of it and you also have to have an understanding of it that connects you to it. The Tachlis Kol and the ultimate success, the ultimate happiness that the Prophet promises us as a nation, that there will come a moment in time where this oneness, this uniqueness of Hashem will become revealed to all. And this is something which is constantly referred to in all of the words of the prophets, Aleyam Ashalam. And he gives some examples. On that day, God will stand elevated and exalted unto himself, without anybody else occupying the same kind of um, um, significance in anybody's mind. That's one. Another verse. Then, in, in Mashiach's times, by Yemahu, in that time, Hashem Echad. Then Hashem will be one, Ushmai Echad, and His name will also be one. Now, what does it mean? He will be one, and His name will be one. So, He will be one is not something that God develops into. He's one now too. But Shmo Echad is the is the distinction. Shmo is a reference to His name. What does that mean? His name, His reputation, the way He's perceived. Okay, the way he's perceived. Uh, Shmo, the name of something, is the way that people understand it, how it carries. Today, Hashem is Echad. Today, Hashem is one also, the same way that he's going to be one then. But the Shmo Echad is a different story. That his name is one, that, his, that he's perceived, that he's understood, that, uh, that he has the label of Echad in the mind and in the hearts of men, in the hearts of people, that's in Mashiach's times. Um, one of the, one of the um, examples of this, if I can be allowed to go off the text, which I always do anyway, 
Okay. Um, if I could just give you an example of this concept of Shmo Echad, his name is one, as opposed to the the Talmud is really d- bothered. Okay, the Talmud is really bothered by this particular by this particular verse. What does this verse say? This verse says, "In that time, God will be one, and His name will be one." So the Talmud right away is up in arms, and the Talmud says, is, do, do you mean to say that today God is not one? It says in that time God is going to be one. So the Talmud is up in arms. Now isn't God one? So the Gemara says in. Now God is one. Hashem Echad. But Shmei is not Echad. But His name is not one. And then the Gemara goes to prove this. How do we see that God's name is not one? In other words, perceived, uh, that God is not perceived as one, and the Gemara gives the following example, which is a very good introduction to what we're going to learn uh, in, a, in a short while. The Gemara says the following thing, when something extremely good happens to a person in his life, there's a special blessing that we say for that. Baruch Hashem, blessed art thou, Lord of the universe, however it's translated, that you are good and you bestow of your goodness upon others this is a blessing that's made when um, when something phenomenally good happens to a person um, let's say a trem- he has a windfall profit in business or there's a great inheritance that falls to him or he wins uh, the lotto game so he would make right? that would be one example then the Gemara says, but what happens? You know, life is full of the opposites as well, of, of very bad things happening to a person. So for that, a person says, Tzidok a person says a blessing which says that God is a true judge, Dayan Emes. Okay, we don't understand his judgment, but we have a belief or a faith that, that God is a Dayan Emes, that he's a true judge, and what he did as difficult as it is for me to absorb, but he, in, in his position as a judge in the world, did what was right for that for that moment, for that person, for that particular circumstance. And that's called Tzidok Adin. So the Gemara points out, and the Gemara says <coughs> the following thing. You want to know the truth. Everything that God does is ultimately good. Everything that God does is good. But some things are obviously good to us because they're the windfall profit they're the, you know, the fabulously good things that we wait for or never even hope to have happen to us in our lives and then there are things which are very very difficult for us to take but are ultimately purposeful and necessary for a purpose those of you that were by the class about innocent suffering and the whole concept of suffering we know that there are a lot of difficult circumstances that can happen in a person's life that are extremely purposeful and that the ultimate goal of where a person's supposed to get might require just that particular kind of a circumstance to happen. So our belief, the, our ideal belief in God says that God is the epitome of good and therefore there is nothing that comes from God that is bad. In other words, that the intent is bad. It might not be comfortable, it might hurt, but the intent of God's actions in any case is the ultimate good. We don't necessarily understand that it's good. 
we ne don't necessarily ever come to appreciate everything that happens to us as being good, but if we believe that God is Hatay, that God is really the epitome of good, there is virtually nothing that can be classified as bad in, in terms of what happens to us. So in other words, the question, why did God make this bad thing happen? The answer ultimately has to be that it's not bad. We have to show how it's not bad. But ultimately, when we talk about good and bad in relationship to God, we're making a mistake in a, in a, in a premise. It's not bad. Bad is a value judgment. It's saying that it's bad because we don't see a purpose to it, or we don't appreciate the particular purpose. Right? But ultimately, our belief in Hashem says that we believe so much in God's goodness that even the things that are difficult in our lives, we know that they're good. Now, realistically speaking, our sages were extremely astute, and they were very much on the ball, if you'll excuse the expression, and they knew that you cannot say about a calamity that happens in your life, just because philosophically you believe or you have faith that God is, is the epitome of good. And therefore, when the sages uh, established the blessings, they made two separate blessings for the good things that happened. Sure, God is good and he bestows of his goodness. And when it comes to a difficult thing, the sages said, listen, the fact that you're supposed to have faith that it's good, that's something that everybody is at a different level. And everybody has to work on that. And it could very well be that we go through all of life and we don't leave life necessarily feeling the taiv, the good of that particular circumstance. What could be expected of us? What could be expected of us that we can make strides in understanding that God is a true judge? that there was a system, there was a judgment, there was a decision-making process that God was faithful to, honest to, true to. Tzidok So today, being, in other words, our sages never wanted that we should have to say something that we really didn't mean deep, deep down, or throw a spiritual burden upon us that was way beyond our capacity, so therefore, in today's times, before we see a, a full perception of God, so we have two distinct blessings, one for the good things that happen, and one for, quote-unquote, the bad things that happen. The good things, we really get going, and we say, if you're good and you bestow your good, because we are alive with seeing the good. We are, we've been stimulated, we've been, we've been activated at, at having seen something good realistically the difficult things that happen to a person we can believe that they're good but do we feel that they're good we don't really feel that they're good and we can argue from today till tomorrow philosophically but we still don't feel with a clarity that they're good and therefore the sages didn't want us to make a blessing that we didn't feel they wanted us to make blessings that we felt that we can feel and therefore they said realistically the parameters within which a person can work we can strive to is tzidok adin, that I don't understand where God's coming from, but I believe that he's a true judge. In other words, he's the judge, I'm not a judge. He, he, he went through lawyer school, I didn't go through law. He's the judge. I believe that he's a true judge. That doesn't mean that I'm, 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 I'm being taken away with inspiration of the good that God just bestowed upon me. I'm not, because I don't feel it that way. And if I don't feel it that way, I can't say it that way. So this is what the Gemara says. So the Gemara says, but la'asid la'avai, in Mashiach's times, there will only be one bracha. No matter what it is that happens in Mashiach's times, there will only be one blessing. Hatay native. 
And the Gemara says, and that's your proof, or that would be an example of Lav Shmei Echad. Today, God's name is not one. Why? Because a God of good, we relate to. A God that has difficulties and punishments and other things, we don't relate to that God. We would like to believe that it's a different force. It's not, it's not the God that I know or the God that I would like to know. So Shmo is not Echad. Today, his name, is that his reputation is not one. Why? Because there are things that happen that we do want to relate to God and that take us to a relationship and there are other things that we have difficulty in accepting that it comes from Hashem. In the Mashiach's times, we'll see that it's all really one. It's all really one. It's one thing. Today we don't really see it as one thing. The good we can see, the bad we see as bad, we don't see it as good. So our perception of Hashem is that he's going off in different directions, good things and bad things. That's not Echad. Echad means that there's total integration, there's total consistency, there's a, there's a total oneness in his conduct. It's not that he, today it's a good mood and tomorrow it's a bad mood. It's, it's a constant blend. Let me give you another example of this concept. Because this concept of Echad even before we get to the specific items of Yehuda Yisbarach, has many different applications. We have this identical concept to the one that I just mentioned in the Shema Yisrael, which we say every single day, twice a day. What do we say? We say Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. Now, if you recall, last week and two weeks ago or three weeks ago, we discussed the fact that every name of Hashem teaches us a different attribute of God. Okay, the, and and the name that's spelled out Yud Hey Vav Hey is spelled out in that way, which is referred to as the name, the essential name of God, because it refers to God who created the world, refers to the attribute of Rachamim, the attribute of compassion, right? the attribute of giving, right? the attribute of Tov of giving. Elokeinu, on the other hand, is is a reference to God as a judge. In fact, in the Chumash, I think we mentioned this, in the Chumash, when we talk about judges, we refer to them as Elohim. Okay, and sometimes we say Elohim, when we refer to a judge, we can say the word Elohim, because it's not God's name. The word Elohim unto itself means an attribute of judging. So what do we say in the Shema Yisrael? Shema Yisrael. Hashem Elokeinu. We have Hashem, and we have Elokeinu. We have both things. We have the Hashem that shows mercy, compassion, lifts the stringency of justice, and then we have Elokeinu. We also have the God that judges us. And then we make the statement and we say Hashem Echad. That be it Hashem, be it Elokeinu, our belief it's really all Hashem Echad. It all comes from, from God's love. It all comes from the name Hashem. Which is an interesting thing because if you study a little bit the history of Shema Yisrael, which is very fascinating, the history of Shema Yisrael has two major sources, and one of them is 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 very much worthwhile to mention here. At the end of Jacob's life, he brought together his twelve children, and he wanted to reveal to them the entire process of Galus, the entire process of exile that would lead up to Mashiach. Right? And moments before he was going to reveal this through prophetic vision, it, the prophetic vision was taken from him, and he could not reveal this process to his children. 
He turns to his children after he loses this contact with prophetic vision, and he says to his children, Shema Yeshlachem Achlekesim HaKadosh Baruch Do you have any problems with God? Do you have any disputes? Do you have any misunderstandings? Do you have any uh, uh, misgivings about this, uh, about Hashem? Now, what prompted that? To which they answered, Shema Yisrael, Shema Yisrael, hear our father Israel. Shema Yisrael, they were addressing their father, and they were allowed to call him by his name Yisrael because that wasn't his birth name, but that was his name of distinction. Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. That Hashem is Elokeinu, he's ours. Okay? And Hashem Echad, and we believe that he's one. And to which Jacob answered, Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuso, Liolam Vaed. The, second, the next verse in the Shema Yisrael. So now, what's going on here? So, what's going on over here is essentially the following. Yaakov wanted to reveal to his children how all of the different episodes of exile would ultimately lead to that time which we await, that time where the world would reach its ultimate goals and fulfillment in Mashiach's times. Why did Jacob want to re- reveal that? Why did he want to reveal that to his children, so that there would always be a steadfast faith that no matter what happens, no matter how many pogroms, no matter how many persecutions, no matter how many uh, exiles and expulsions and holocausts there would be, there is a process here that is leading to Mashiach. This is what Jacob wanted, and Jacob wanted to explain this process to his children. For one reason or another, Hashem did not want that this process should be revealed. So now Yaakov is in a quandary. Yaakov says, I can't reveal the process, but I want that the Jews of all generations should remain steadfast in their faith in spite of all of the obstacles that might contest their belief in God and God's involvement in history. So the first thing that Yaakov said to himself was, the first thing that we got to clear up is if these, are, if these 12 children are the foundation of the Jewish people, from them it is going to evolve the entire Jewish nation, we have to make sure that the foundation is pure, the foundation is strong, the foundation is, has all of the qualities of, 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 uh, of being totally vibrant and alive with belief, so that when the tests to that faith come up in subsequent generations, they have what to fall back on. They have healthy foundations to fall back upon. And therefore, Yaakov's first question to his children is, being that we cannot rely on an intellectually understanding process of how all of the bad things lead to the good things, so we are going to have to develop and nurture a concept of faith without necessarily seeing a step-by-step process, the first thing that we have to do is we have to know that the Yesodas, that the foundations are healthy, to which he turns to his children and he says to his children, maybe you have some kind of a problem with your belief in Hashem. And let's clear it up now. I'm on my deathbed, but let's clear it up right now. Let's go through these things. Let's get them clear. Because if they're clear now and the foundations are healthy and strong, so then there is a hope that the Jew will survive the test to his faith later. But if in the foundations 
there is a question in faith and belief. What chance do we have, thousands of years removed from that first great generation, that we will be able to survive it? To which his children were extremely perceptive, and his children said, we know what's bothering you. Shema Yisrael Hashem Eloikeinu. Be it a God of love and compassion. Be it a God of justice. We know Hashem Echad. We know that that God is one. Which means that they were now making a statement of ultimate faith. Not necessarily, it, not necessarily that they understood it. Not necessarily that it was really a part of them. But they were making an ultimate statement that we, our, our faith as, as Jews is Hashem, Elokeinu, be it either one of them, we know that it's Hashem, we know that it comes from Hashem Echa. To which, Yaakov Avinu answered something which was very interesting. Baruch, blessed is, Shem, Kevayd, Malchusai, Li'aylam, Vayd. Yaakov was talking on a different level. Yaakov was talking on a level of shame. Yaakov knew not only that Hashem Elokein Hashem Echad, but he knew it today. Like, like the like in Mashiach's times, we'll say one blessing. Yaakov knew then, at the end of his life, that it's not just a statement of faith, but it's the real reality. It's shame kevayd malchusay. There's nothing that contradicts his reputation. Shame kevayd malchusay. Now, we do not say. Baruch Shem Kivayd Malchusel Olam Ved out loud. We say that quietly because we're really not there yet. The Shema Yisrael we say out loud because we can through through learning and doing mitzvahs and davening make statements of faith. But the Baruch Shem we say quietly. The only time that we really ascend to a level that we can have a right to say to say the, uh, the, the Baruch Shem out loud is on Yom Kippur. On Yom Kippur, where we, so to speak, leave the parameters, the physical parameters of existence, and, uh, and we reach up into, the high, into, into higher levels of spirituality, then we say the Baruch Shem Kivod out loud. But for the, the, the human being that lives in this physical world, with the material subjectivity of definitions of good and bad, then we ha- there's a distinction. The Shema Yisrael is out loud, the Baruch Shem is quietly. That's, that's a distinction that's made. Interestingly enough, once I'm on this, on this uh, discussion of the, of the Echad, the Shema Echad concept, there is one other source for the Shema Yisrael. If, one, if somebody will ask you, what is the earliest dating okay, for the Shema Yisrael? This is one of them. The episode of Yaakov on his deathbed with his children. There is, though, one other place that dates back quite far in our history, and that is by Har Sinai. By Har Sinai, by Har Sinai when, when the Aseris Hadibris, when the Ten Commandments were being communicated to us as a people, and God said the first Dibur, when Moses, we heard, the first two we heard directly from God. And then, God, then Moses reviewed all ten for us. Now, when Moses reviewed all ten for us, he started off with, Anechi Hashem I am your God who took you out of Egypt from the house of slavery. When he, start, when he said it, he said the following thing. He said, Shema Yisrael. Hear Yisrael. He was addressing the entire nation. 
And he said, Anoichi Hashem Alekecha. Shema Yisrael, Anoichi Hashem Alekecha. To which the Jew answered to the first of the Ten Commandments, Hashem Alekeinu, Hashem Echad. The Jew's response to the first of the Aserah said, this is not commonly known, but it is in the Medrashim. That Moshe said, Shema Yisrael, Anoichi Hashem Alekecha. And the Jew answered, Hashem Alekeinu, Hashem Echad. And the Medrash says, Umikan Zachu Yisrael Shema. And it was from here that the Jew merited the Kriyashma. This is where this is the dating of Kriyashma. So there seems to be a conflict. We have this other story about Yaakov with his children and we have Kriyashma from there. And now we have this other Medrash that it says that it was really part of the Sane experience with Anaychi Hashem Alakacha. And the answer is very simple. There is no dispute. We have it from both places. We have it from both places. We have it from one place. We have it from from Yaakov with his children. Where there his children made a statement of faith of Hashem Yisrael Hashem Hashem Faith, okay, faith. Now, just before, let me just go one step further. I I left something out, and we'll. I just want to go back to it for one minute. If you're wondering why Yaakov reached the level of not having faith in it, but actually feeling it, the reason was because Yaakov's entire life taught him that lesson. Yaakov lived through many crises and tragedies in his lifetime. And exactly when Yaakov felt that God was nowhere near him, and that God had literally forsaken him, God was busy with the survival of his family and the survival of the entire world. And I'm referring specifically to the episode with Yosef, where Yaakov is thinking, I'm lost, I'm, I'm, I'm forever, forever punished in the cruelest way that a person can be punished that my child was, has been killed and taken away from me. And he doesn't understand what, why God brought this, this calamity to his life. And what is God busy doing making Joseph a king in Egypt? and providing sustenance for the entire world, including the survival of Jacob's own family. When Yaakov met up, when Yaakov met up, when Yaakov met up with Yosef, and came to realize, and came to realize that everything that he thought was bad was exactly the opposite, what do you think Yaakov was busy doing? Instead of kissing Yosef, he was saying, Shema Yisrael. Because the illusion that there's good and bad in the, in the conduct of God was utterly dashed out of Yaakov's mind at that moment in time. In any case, this is why Yaakov reached the level of Baruch Shem. But let's go back and let's, let's finish up. Let's just finish up this um, where we were in terms of, of, the, um, of the two sources for Shema Yisrael. The two sources for the Shema Yisrael are like this. The Shema Yisrael that the children of Yaakov said, they said that Shema Yisrael based upon faith. The faith that was nurtured by generations of connection to Hashem. Abraham's connection to Hashem, Yitzhak's connection to Hashem, Yaakov's. The sense of, con- of belief in Hashem that's nurtured by the spiritual genes and ancestry of three generations that worked on a relationship with God. And every Jew, by virtue of his birthright as a Jew, has an ability to say Shema Yisrael Hashem Hashem Echad, with nothing else, just by the fact 
that he's also from the children of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. The, it's not easy, and it doesn't happen overnight, but there's a spiritual reservoir of potential simply because of our ancestry and spiritual genes that we've inherited to be able to say that statement, Hashem Elokein Hashem Echad. But then we're introduced to another idea. Beyond faith, but not necessarily at the point of logical conclusion, there is a middle ground. And the middle ground is not that it's simple faith, not on the other hand that it's logical conclusion, but it's, it's faith, but it's faith with such a tremendous certainty that all that's missing is logical, logical sequence. But I feel it with such a certainty. You know, sometimes you feel things and you're sure of them. And if you're asked to prove them, you cannot prove them. You can't prove them. But you're so darn sure of it, okay, that you're willing to bet anything, you'll, you'll bet your life on it that that's the way it is, but logically you can't make a sequence to it. Right? And this is a different level. There's, there's emuna, which is the simple faith. That's, at the, that's one level. Then there is total seichel, total intellectual understanding through logical sequence and equation. And then there's something which is called a sense of tzedek, the sense of what's right, which is, is, is a strengthened level of emuna. Now, what we're being taught is the following. The level of the bottom, I wouldn't call it the bottom level, but the raw level of unadulterated, pure faith in Hashem. That's from Yaakov and his children. That's from the ancestry. That's in the spiritual genes. That's a chosem. That's an emblem that every Jew has being a descendant of Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov. But how do we ascend to deeper levels of understanding, deeper levels of being, of being uh, convinced without necessarily understanding this bad thing. I can show you exactly how it's a good thing without knowing it, but being convinced of it not just faith, but being convinced of it, that we are told, that comes through Torah. That comes through a person's exposure to Torah. When a person learns Torah, learns God's will, learns God's wisdom, he has a spiritual contact that gives him an assuredness that God knows what he's doing. In other words, until I read God's books and see the author and understand the author and gain conscious and subconscious feelings and understandings of God, then God is very distant from me. And I don't necessarily understand what he's doing, and I have to take it on a measure of faith. But through the learning of Torah and the exposure to Hashem's will, if you want to say it's the holiness of the Torah or if it's the exposure to the expressions of God's will, but a person is nurtured with a certainty through Limud HaTorah. And this is why this is why the challenges of innocent suffering ultimately is a challenge that people that were connected to Torah in deep ways, to the learning of Torah in deep ways, were always able to rise above that ch the challenge of that question. Did they have answers? And if you not tap them on the shoulder and ask them, they didn't have logical answers for you. But they didn't have the question either. There was a certain, they were convinced because of their connection to Torah that Hashem Alekein Hashem Echad. I don't know the answers. If you're asking me for logical reasons, I can't give you logical reasons. I'll weep and I'll cry and I'll suffer and it'll hurt, but I know Hashem Alekein Hashem Echad. 
and the indication the Sinai experience the Jews connection to Tyre gives him the ability to say Shema Yisrael and I'd like to prove this I'd like to prove this not in a day-to-day way but in a in a, in a scholastic way from a medrash a medrash which is extremely difficult to understand without what we just said now there's a very beautiful medrash in Eicha the medrash in Eicha says that uh, that's in the introduction to Lamentations there's a lot um, there's a lot of uh, material to try to appreciate what it's all about the Lamentations are over the destruction of the first and second temple and there's an interesting story there about um, a princess that married into royalty, married a king, and uh, soon after the marriage, the princess be- was disloyal, unfaithful, and, and the king warned her numerous times, and she didn't take the warnings, and the king packed his bags and left. And the way the story continues is that she waited and waited and waited that for the king to come back and to no avail you know left the light open whatever you however you want to paint the picture and the medrash goes on to tell the story about how the neighbors began coming in and telling her you're crazy for waiting he's most probably someplace else and he, he for, totally forgot about you he left you go and remarry and and forget it and as much as she felt the pressure to believe that because of the length of time that the king was gone, it says that whenever she was about to break and to succumb to that pressure, she used to go to her inner chamber, to her private chambers, and she pulled out all of the documents and all of the, the, the promises and all of the, the letters, the love letters and everything that the king had written her during their period of courtship and after, immediately after their marriage. And after sitting down and mulling over these things and reading them well enough, she walked out with uh, a firm belief that he's eventually going to come back. There's too much in what he wrote to believe that the relationship is gone forever. And sure enough, the marriage goes on to say that the king did finally return, and the king was totally amazed to find anybody home. And the first question that the king asked is, How were you able to wait for me so long? To which she answered, I'll tell you the truth, I don't know how I was had the strength to wait so long, but the only thing that I can say is that whenever I was about to buckle under pressure, I used to read these ksubas, all of these contractual agreements, and all of these expressions of your feelings towards me, and that's what help me survive so the medrash ends off and the medrash says Kach, in the same way God wed the Jewish people to himself Kach, and, and soon the Jewish people went and acted in disloyal ways and sinned and God left as the king left his, 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 his princess behind and all of the nations of the world the neighbors are coming to us and saying God has chosen you true and married you true but has finally left you and is not going to return so come and join us and join our beliefs and join our lifestyles come with us that don't you see isn't it clear to you from everything that's happened in history that God has utterly forsaken you 
and the Medrash continues and the Medrash says that the Jew would have buckled many times from that pressure if it weren't that he would have had his synagogues and houses of learning to seek refuge in and very often under the pressure of these kinds of things the Jews ran into the they ran into the houses of, of prayer and the houses of learning and and they opened up the Sifrei Taira and the Taira that talked is God's dialogue, his bris, his covenant between himself, the marriage contract between himself and his people, and this gave the Jew the strength to survive. So the Medrash says, and certainly in the end of times when Mashiach comes, the king will return to his palace. God will return fully to his people, and again will ask the question to his people, how were you able to wait for me for those thousands of years of exile and you didn't give in to the persuasions and the enticements of the nations around you to which the Jews answer is going to be it's only the Bateknesias of Batimadrashas it's only those houses of prayer and those houses of learning that preserved us through those thousands of years the connection of Torah in, in, the, in the survival of the Jew in his difficult circumstances. Good? Nice Medrash? Beautiful. Then the Medrash ends up and the Medrash says, And this is what's meant when it says, Shema Yisrael Hashem Hashem Echad. That's how the Medrash ends up. The Medrash, after the Medrash says the story with the king and the queen and with God and the Jewish people, it says, and this is what's meant when it says, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elkein Hashem What's going on? The answer is very simple, because the Shema Yisrael Hashem Elkein Hashem is, is that statement, that if God reveals himself in the, in the Bechina, in the aspect of Elkeinu, the Jew knows they, deep down Hashem Echad, that Hashem is one. So if we read back in our history, it's not a coincidence and it's not only because Shema Yisrael Hashem because our aspiration and our desire and our prayers and our hopes for learning Torah is equivalent to thanking God for it because why otherwise would we beseeching God in every language of beseechment that we should have the wisdom and the inspiration to understand so it's clearly a blessing that's directed to Torah as a whole where does that come in before Shema? Well, the answer is very simple because if we are answered on that blessing of Torah we can say the Shema Yisrael with much more reality so it's very very much of an introduction to Shema we beg Hashem in other words we're about to say Shema Yisrael which is really in a certain sense very limited and therefore we introduce it and we say we want to be able to say Shema Yisrael with all of the conviction that a person today before Mashiach comes can say Shema Yisrael how will we be able to do that? we're asking for that element that's going to give it to us the Torah give me the wisdom, give me the inspiration give me the courage to see what it says there and immediately following that connection to Torah by asking for an understanding of it I also will gain by that virtue a better way of saying Shema Yisrael too. There's a direct connection between that prayer for Torah and the Shema Yisrael because it's our prayers for Torah that then become the enablers for us to be able to say realistically the Shema Yisrael. Now, that's all parenthetically. 
But getting back, getting back to the text, um, now you'll see that it's not so parenthetically. The next verse, Ki az Then I will turn to the nations, Hashem, and they will all call out the name of Hashem. Shem Hashem. You see that? Shem Hashem. And they will all take their, they will all lower their shoulder to to serve me. The Saiv Davar. And the final thing that I can say in testimony to this concept of the oneness of Hashem, this is what we say every day on a daily basis. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Alekeinu, Hashem Echad. That's what we say. That's the that's the pinnacle remark that a Jew says in terms of his belief. Nimtza. So what does it come out? Shekol mashim is baralanu beemes meyitzim shleimusai. That the from everything that becomes clear to us about the wholesomeness and the perfection of God, which is essentially limitless, huraki chudei hashalim. It is, it is His oneness. That when we will look at everything that, that was created in this world, we will see We will see one thing. Oh, we, we finished the sheets? No, not yet. Okay, we're all the way at the bottom of the sheet. We see one thing that's constantly turning and moving in the direction. Where does everything settle? The truth of this this concept, Hashem Echad. Now what we have to do is we have to understand what it means. Now I have personally, uh, realize it or not, I have given you one insight, one more advanced insight into Hashem Echad that we can simply say that God is one and there is no other God there are other entities but there is only one God okay, that's most probably the most rudimentary definition of Hashem Echad there is one God there are peoples, there are Hercules, there are presidents there are schnooks, there is everything but there is only one God okay? right. that's the most rudimentary definition now we've learned something else right? we've learned something else there is this one God, this one God that we're talking about, He is one. What is that one that He is? Taif. That's a much more, that's a, that's a completely different thing. There's only one God. Right? But now we're saying, and everything that God does has a common denominator, which makes all of His conducts one. The, and what is that one? Taif. That's a, that's a very advanced concept in what Hashem Echad is. Now, obviously, if you take it back to the book of 915 prayers, you can see very well now how you can make a prayer about Hashem Echad in that sense. Because if one of the aspects of Hashem Echad is, is that everything that Hashem does is essentially one thing, taiv, so obviously a person can daven all day to be able to see that, to understand that, to comprehend that to be inspired by that kind of an idea. In other words, reveal yourself so that I should really be able to see your oneness and not see a good God and a bad God or a good guy and, and some things that I don't understand about. Now we can see it. 
we, we can see how a person can be striving and praying to be able to understand the Hashem Elokein Hashem Echad but that's only one of the examples he has five by the way he has five particular uh, insights or deeper insights into the concept of Hashem is one Okay. I happen to share one of the five with you with this entire discussion of the Shema okay. now but this is what we require to do and this is what's meant when it says in the verse we need good contemplation and good counsel and this concept I've already told you this is a tremendous ocean there's a lot to swim in over here and we and when we're finished we will be utterly satisfied with it uh, but there's lots to do so the soul says how much understanding do we need about the oneness of Hashem if you're talking about God's oneness there's one God and there's no other God it's simple stuff what are you getting carried away this is an ocean to swim in I mean what is it already now I already gave you a little bit uh, an inkling this week about what Hashem Echad can mean beyond just that there is one God and I gave you some, some uh, inkling of it also last week when we talked about the concept of how we relate to judgments that God makes in keeping in mind the uniqueness of God and knowing my limitation and therefore my not being able to make a statement I don't appreciate what God uh, restricted from me you remember the discussion that we had last week these are some of the examples Right. Before we start the new sheets, which I wasn't so disorganized about, um, I'd like to take questions on what, we, if there are any, on what we did up to this point, because now we're really jumping into a very big, a big ocean. If, uh, if I'll be excused for plagiarizing, yeah. Excuse me. So why is He's asking, he happens to be asking an excellent question. And uh, Reb Chaim Velazhina, who was uh, one of the major disciples of the Vilna Gaon, um, deals with this question in uh, Shar Gimel, in the third gate of his famous book, Nefesh Chaim. Um, the Nefesh Chaim gives the following answer. It, I'm only going to give a, ca- uh, a very short answer to it, and it's going to miss a lot of the punch, but it's the technical answer. And uh, at an- another time, we'll go into it at greater length. Um, when we talk about the name of God, which is Yudke Vavke, it's true that it's referring to the attribute of God in terms of his. Uh, giving, okay. Um, particularly, particularly, the fact that he created the world was um, a, uh, a tremendous example of giving, 
before him there was nothing after him there is nothing so the entire world was something that came into being <coughs> it was the creation of a recipient <coughs> for his giving so the creation of the world uh, is, is, is referred to in that way but the truth of the matter is that the Yudke Vavke is not solely a definition of God vis-a-vis -vis his world but it is a, a definition to whatever extent we can define God unto himself in other words, if I were to ask you, if I were to ask you, what was God's name before the world? You know, all of God's names are for conducts of God. Did God have a name before he created a world? If all of the names of God are, are to teach us conducts of God, conducts of God need recipients of the conduct. So before there was a world, before there was conducts of God, because there were certainly no recipients upon which to play those conducts, what name did God have? What name did God have? Right. So in a certain sense, God had no name. And that sounds very weird. But to the extent that we want to understand a God before any world, his name would be yud ke Why? Because the name Yudke Vavke really spells out three words in different combinations of the letter. Haya, Hove, Viyiya. He was, he is, and he will be. And that's the only thing that we can say about the essential existence of God independent of his world. He was before the world, he is now, and he will be when there is no world either. His existence is totally independent not dependent but independent it's an absolute existence and in that sense the yud ke vav ke is a definition of the existence of God unattached to a world you follow what I'm saying? Yeah. So we can look at ourselves as being un-eternal? excuse me? We, can, we cannot look at ourselves as being um, eternal also so that the name would fit us just like Hashem goes we go we not really also, no. Not really. Uh, in 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 certain in a, in certain deep aspects, there is such a concept which I don't want to get into. There is such an idea, but essentially that name, that Shema Etzem, is something that's very much reserved to Hashem. Now I, I must be honest with you that the sh any name is by definition its imprint, and therefore is a definition of God vis-à-vis -vis His world. But if there would be any name that would have any any way of referring to God without a relationship to the world it would be that Yudke Vavke and that is why the Yudke Vavke is not described in a possessive tense as, as Elokeinu is because it, it by definition it's a definition of God with our worlds as well right, that's in capsule form the ramifications of that and how we get turned on or off by that answer it's something that we have to leave for a different different time. It's it's a very involved thing. Um, I was just wondering technically. Um, you said Moshe said Shema Yisrael no Hashem So um, didn't wasn't Hashem the one who said that? Okay. So if, if I I I, I, s I said it a little bit carefully, but I said it quickly. God said all of the Ten Commandments, and then the commandments were repeated by Moshe. Oh, they were all said. They oh. were all said. Um, they were all said, and the Jews heard all of them together. 
and then heard individual ones. But in, Ga- in, in Moses' repetition of the Aseris Hadibris, he began with Shema Yisrael, and then he said, Anayich Hashem Alekecha. Okay, so both are correct. Yeah. How does somebody who doesn't study the Torah very much, such as a lot of women, get um, that kind of understanding of the Shema? Particularly religious women have a lot of kids that don't study the Torah that much on the time, and the, the husband studies. <laughs> well, uh, I must answer that question in a, in a number of ways. First of all, I, I believe I said it last week or two weeks ago, there are whole segments of Torah that... Not, I'm not talking about logistically. I'm talking ideally, from an ideal, uh, an ideal uh, approach. Uh, a woman has um, as much of an obligation to study any part of Torah, certainly the parts of Torah that deal with with the ethics and the Musa and the philosophy and the spiritualism of Torah, as much as a man does. Right? Um, obviously, there there are logistical problems and there are exemptions because of her unique ability and talent in raising children that exempt her from the the uh, constant day and night study of Torah. The only thing that a woman is excluded from in terms of Torah is, is the learning of Talmud. For, for specific reasons that's unique to the learning of Talmud. She's not excluded from learning. She's excluded from Talmud from the, the Talmudic approach of learning, which is, is it will not develop her particular spiritual kachas, spiritual potentials. Now, that's, that's the first thing that I must say. It's, 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 uh, it's a misconception that women don't have that, that obligation. Uh, it's sometimes su- uh, supported because of wrong rit- literature or wrong impressions. Some of it comes from the fact that it's hard to get to it. Okay, but let me just let it be suffice to say that a lot of men have problems getting to it too. Right. Uh, True. Okay, so we don't have to we don't have to you know carry the banner of being persecuted. There are plenty of men that have the obligation of doing it and never get to it either. But um, a second response to your to your question in terms of of how you get to Shema Yisrael, I must tell you that um, there's a blessing that's made in the morning that that um, men make one blessing which is extremely confusing, and this is a whole can of worms, I don't know if I should get into it now. Men make one blessing and women make a different blessing in the morning. Uh, I'm just going to go, the women's issue will leave for another time, but let me just give you a, a brief synopsis. The woman's the bracha that the woman makes, which is uniquely her bracha, is Sha'asani Kiritsana, that you made me consistent with your will. Mm-hmm. Now most women read this after they read the bracha before that they're not supposed to say, <laughs> You didn't make me a woman and this is uh Shasani Kirtsano means uh it's e- something between sour grapes and uh being resolved being a second-class citizen, and neither is true, by the way. Shasano Kiritsano, the real definition of Shasano Kiritsano, and Rabbi Monk speaks about it in his book on on prayer. Uh, Shasano Kiritsano means that you made me closer to your will. Shasani Kiritsano means that my very nature is closer to what your will is. 
Now, in other words, a man is more distanced by his nature from being compatible with God's will, and he has to struggle much more with it. A woman, her makeup, her spiritual, emotional, psychological makeup lends itself to being much closer to God's will than a man's. Now, there are exceptions by men and there are exceptions by women. Right? We're not talking about the exceptions, but as a rule, a woman is made closer to, to, to God's will. And if we want to prove this historically, this can be proven historically. If you want to go, we're right before Pesach, so let's give a Pesach example. Right? It was the women and their emunah and Hashem in the, in, the, in the darkest moments of Egyptian exile that were responsible for the survival of the Jewish people. When men felt that there was no reason to move any forward or build families or have families or have a family life, it was the women that went out of their ways in all kinds of techniques and methods to make sure that the family would be preserved and that the next generations would be brought into the world. Right? And it was the abiding faith that women had that that preserved Klal Yisrael and kept the spirit of the people up to be able to go through those darkest moments. When it came to the Chet Egel, when it came to the sin of the Golden Calf, I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, it was the men, or some of the men, that worshipped the Golden Calf. There was no woman that worshipped the Golden Calf. No woman. No woman would be caught or was anywhere near that kind of uh, disloyalty to Hashem. There was no woman that was involved in the Chet Egel. Right? And this is the reason, by the way, this is the reason why, the, because the, without getting into a very Kabbalistic ex- explanation of this, but um, the holiday of Rosh Chodesh, of the new moon, is directly related to being a correction for the sin of the golden calf, which is a whole involved thing, which I'm not going to get into. It's very Kabbalistic in nature. But women are not supposed to really do certain forms of work on Rosh Chodesh, or at least the custom is that they try to stay it's their holiday because they, were, they weren't involved in the sin to begin with um, so I must tell you that uh, that women by, by and large by the, by the way that the emblem that Hashem gave them have, have much more a sense of amuna and much more of a sense of a connection to Hashem to begin with without the time-oriented uh, constrained mitzvah of Kriya Shema. A woman, li- a woman lives with Shema, right? a woman lives with Shema uh, much more by her very nature than does a man. But if, if a man has to struggle more to achieve that, doesn't that make him greater? Does that make the person greater? Does he overcome more often? But if somebody is born, let's say, you know, Shalim, so they don't but have... But a man can never have a child, so he, can he ever come to that mandrake of being able to have the same exclusive as bearing a child? Well, not every woman could have a child either. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, <all right>. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
I think that really um, I'll have to think more about that. I, um, See the question. I, I'll just start an answer, but I'm not gonna. I, I'm not gonna. It's a good question. I just start a, a path towards a, towards an answer without getting terribly involved in it. Uh, when we talk about um, measuring one thing up against another thing, we always have to ask ourselves the question in terms of practical application. In other words, uh, the fact that somebody got there through challenge, as uh, as opposed to a person that didn't have the same extent of a challenge. So you say, well, the person that had the challenge and and grew and confronted the challenge is greater. The question is. Let's just go on a hypothetical path, a hypothetical path. Let's say the person is great. In what way will that greatness show itself? In what way is um, will that greatness appear and then in comparison make the, um, the woman's role seem to be deficient in relationship to it? That's the question that one has to ask. You're wondering how that's a path to an answer, but it is. No, I understand. Just, I just uh, don't. In other words, we 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 get very much involved in labels of bigger and greater and smaller, and you know, we when we get down to the brass tacks, it's very important to um, to ask ourselves the question: Are we merely um, being impressed by bigger or greater, or smaller or weaker, or are there specific things that we yearn for? that, oh, the man is greater, and, you know, these are the things that I yearn for, and he's greater, and he has them, and I don't have them, and I need them, and I'm deficient in them, and I'm missing them. That's the connotation that it should have. In other words, the fact that um, it, 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 if, for instance, for argument's sake, I could say that the man is reaches a greater level, but it doesn't make absolutely one practical difference in moment-to-moment living in the woman's life. She's greater because it happened by challenge. But in a practical sense, is there anything that the woman could do more if she would be the man or things like that in practical sense? If I would argue to you that there is nothing more that could, that could give her fulfillment, if I would argue that, right, we would most probably still be disturbed by the fact that one seems to be greater than the other. But greater means closer to Hashem. And greater doesn't mean not... I mean, isn't that the definition of greater? That I certainly would... That I certainly would... um, That I certainly would question if that's true. You know, um, if in closeness to Hashem, one is that I would definitely question, and I would definitely question if that's true or not. Yeah. I'll have to think more about that.
That's, I, I didn't. I wasn't disputing that. I was saying that, in that being the definition of greater, I I was understanding that greater means that you're stronger in different characteristics or in st- certain qualities. In the definition of greater, be meaning closer to Hashem to then make the statement that a man can certainly come closer to God than a woman. Uh, that's a statement that I'm very uncomfortable with. I, I don't think that that's so. I, uh, I would have to think a lot more about the question. It's a good question, but uh, uh, there's something inside of me that says that that's off the mark. Well, it is, we do know that women have a certain mm-hmm. quality of being that a man can never possess. I mean, so why don't you say that, well, okay, women are greater because a man can never possess that type of unders- intuition, women's intuition. I mean, it's like uh, everything is so different. There's no comparison. But I would just say, like through your through your struggling, that's how you become close to Hashem, really. In other words, if you're just given a certain gift, I, it's just kind of hard. You know what I'm saying? Do you know what I'm saying? Maybe she in the sense of Alam Alam Habbos. The reward is great. Yeah. yeah the reward. The the, the Alam Habbos is great. It's not that she's really she's okay. He's getting an Alam Habbos that. I have to think more about it. Honestly, I'm not. The satisfaction of being able to achieve more. But I don't know if it's necessary. I have to think more about it. I mean, also, I'm not avoiding the question. I have to, you know, but from time to time, I, you know, mm-hmm. I have to think. Well, while you're thinking about it, there's another element to it, and that's that sort of cliche by now that the, the Balshuva can get to where Sadiq can't. I thought that concept is based on the fact that you have more to overcome when you become religious. So that, you know, if you get closer, it's because you had obstacles that somebody. And there are some people who, from the time they're three or four years old, if you read their biographies, they were already holy. I mean, you know, you could see. I mean, the little kids who are, who are so considerate of their parents, they're well beyond the level of an average four or five-year-old who's basically selfish. So somebody who has to overcome, like, 30 or 40 years of their life has a lot of struggling to do that somebody who was a really kind and compassionate and sweet kid at five years old doesn't have to do it. So I don't know if that's, you know, factor in that question or not, but it seems to me like it's related. You know, it's, uh, it's I, I don't know if you if you realize it or not, but the, the Talmud has a, a, a very animated dispute about this, about uh, the Tzadik Meikar and the Balchuva, like, quote-unquote, who is greater. There is, it's not, it's not unequivocally and undisputably that the Balchuva is on the greater level. That's good, because after you said enough people's Shabbos tables, they tell you that you it's can not, uh, get yourself <laughs> distorted if you don't go home and say, hey, it's forget it. No, <laughs> to correct you. <laughs> you get it's not, uh, <laughs> not simple. Yeah, I'd um, be interested in that if it's relevant to the question when you ask it's, it. <laughs> it's not simple. Um, Um, the the um, you know the concept of b'makom shabalchuva omed uh, you know the greatness of the balchuva over the the person that was always you know FFB you know from from birth and things like that <laughs> yeah, it's it's not a simple thing I must tell you it's not simple because um, there is an answer to the question that I'm going to give you now, a very uh, a very profound answer, 
but uh, the question is worth asking and um, I'd like to give uh, a, a possibly uh, a certain insight into what it means that the, the Balchuva has a certain greatness over the Tzadik Meikara um, you know Rabbi Yisrael Salanter says uh, in some of his writings, Rabbi Sorel Salanta, just uh, for information, those of you have to have, is really the father of the um, specialized study of ethics. In other words, ethics was something that was woven into the tapestry of everything that we learned. Um, you know, in the middle of the most involved, um, uh, seemingly irrelevant discussion of what's the law when one ox bores another ox all of a sudden you, you in the middle of the Talmud can have a dis- an ethical issue or a moral issue discussed but uh, Rabbi Sarl Salanter essentially what he did was that knowing that there were people that just dealt with the technicals and skipped over all of the ethicals and morals made a specialized study of ethics and morals and he was considered like the father of what's referred to as the Musser movement Salanter, in some of his writings, uh, makes a very interesting logical statement, which prese- blows this whole Balchuva problem into uh, into an immense into an immense question. He says the following thing: he says there is a rule, the Fumtsara Agra, which means the Fumtsara to the extent of pain that a person has, Agra is his reward. In other words, two people go ahead and do the same mitzvah, but one of them finds it very painful to do because of the time constraints or because I'm not used to it or whatever, whatever the reason might be. And for the other person, it's easy schmeezy. Right? Now, they both did the mitzvah, but in, in, the, in the levels of reward, the person that had more difficulty with it is more rewarded for Lefum tsar to the extent of tsar to the extent of pain that a person has agra is his reward, which by the way is a monumental concept in God's particular understanding and knowledge of every person's struggle, and that God doesn't just look at things in the technical aspect of acts, but the motivations and the feelings and the difficulties that go before, while, and afterwards. But th- there is such a rule. So Rabbi Yisrael Salanta says that even though that that rule is true, Rabbi Yisrael Salanta says that if I was responsible for creating the circumstance that makes it difficult for me, then there's no lefum tsaragra. I did it to myself. In other words, let's say I get so hooked on a bad habit that when now I try to do a certain mitzvah it's very hard for me to do. Why? Because I developed a certain habit. Let's say I developed a habit, so we'll take an innocent one, a uh, relatively innocent one. I developed a habit that I do not open up my eyes before 9 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> I developed this habit. Okay? Uh, for one month straight I never saw daylight before 9 a.m. Okay? Right? Now, because of this habit, it becomes difficult to daven before you go to work. You know, because there's no time to daven. If you get so now I have a tremendous challenge of davening. Okay? And now I've got to pull myself out of bed at 8.30 instead of 9 o'clock. Right? So Rabbi Yisrael Salanta says, please excuse me, but you created the problem. 
If you create the problem, you can't then go ahead and get on the line for rewards and say, well, my tsar was bigger, so my reward is big. You made the problem yourself. So wh- where does the Tsara Agra come in? Where it comes in, where a person is in a natu- his natural tendencies, his background. The situations that he wasn't responsible for creating that develop difficulty for him, and if he overcomes his difficulty, so then there's greater reward. But if he, so to speak, introduces the Tsar, he creates the Tsar situation, he can't then go ahead and say, well, my Tsar was bigger, so my reward should be bigger. He did it himself. You shouldn't have created the Tsar. You made you made it more difficult, and then you want to get rewarded for making it more difficult. Well, where's the line? I mean, I should have become religious 15 years ago when I was first exposed to it, but I said no, I don't want it. Then does that mean I created you know more difficulty? No, 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 no. In most cases, in most cases, in most cases that we're dealing with, when people become interested in Judaism, it wasn't that they created a problem and now they're trying to get out of the problem. They never knew what Judaism was to begin with, so it has nothing to do with this discussion. This is my background. These are things that I was born into and I couldn't help myself. This definitely goes under the category of the Funtzara Agra. But I'm talking about the person that willingly does something wrong, develops a habit, and then... Because if you want to know the truth, the, the most technical definition of a Baal Tshuva is a person that was there, went away, and then came back. That's the technical. The person that, because of circumstances, of background, and other places, is is not is and then becomes aware, is is not cons- is technically is not balchuva. That person is technically is 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 is. is um, it's like being, you'll excuse the expression, growing up, or b- being born. It's, it's like life starting from the very beginning. The real term Baal Tshuva refers to somebody that knows, goes away, and then has difficulty coming back, but comes back. Right? So, and this is what Rabbi Yisrael Salanta says. Rabbi Yisrael Salanta says, if I made the problem for myself, I can't then get on the line for collecting bigger rewards. I made the line for so the question that comes up is, so why is the Balchuva, why is the place of the Balchuva such a great and exalted place? He made the problem himself. The Balchuva that was there and went away, not the one that was never there. So in other words, everything that we talk about, the tremendous merits of the Balchuva and everything else, a big thank you. You made the problem. You got yourself out of You made a mess. Clean up the mess. And you deserve a pat on the back. No, but it's a serious question. It's a serious question. So the glorification that we give the the, the technical balchuva that the Gemara talks about is a monumental problem. It's a big problem. There are a number of ways of dealing with, with this. I'm, I'm going to give you one simple answer. One simple answer to this. There is a, a very profound answer that Rav Hutna Zechariah Levracha um, said to this, which is, is is a mind-boggling one. We'll leave for a different time, maybe before before Hashanah Yom Kippur. But the simple answer to this is that this whole business with the Bauchuva being greater means a totally different thing. It doesn't necessarily mean in terms of reward he's greater. What it means that the Bauchuva is on a higher level means the following thing, that in a certain sense, the Bauchuva brings to his Yiddishkeit a, a a wisdom of experience 
that can make the depth of his connection very unique. In other words, the fact that I was everywhere else and I know that it's all nothing and it's all <laughs> empty, once is goonished, and that I know what's not and what is, that that the 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 the, being, the, uh, the strength of seeing light and dark clearly, as opposed to the person that's tzaddik and wonders of what's doing on the other side of the fence but doesn't really know and has the strength of character never to find out, but nevertheless doesn't have the wisdom of that experience behind it, is a distinct is a distinction. There is a distinction there now. The dispute that the Gemara has. The dispute that the Talmud has is that distinction that the Balchuva has, the wisdom of experience that the Balchuva has, is that a supreme over the fact that the person was never exposed and tainted by those experiences, or is the the not being at all exposed and so to speak never lowering one's standard to those experiences is that the supreme in other words but nobody's going to argue that each one has a plus there's nobody that's going to say that the Balchu has got it and the Tzadik Meikara the guy that never did anything the person that never did anything wrong doesn't have it or vice versa that's not the dispute the question is just if you want to measure one aspect up against the other which one would reign supreme the purity of never having been in contact with it or the, the power and the, the, the poignancy of a Yiddishkeit that has wisdom of experience behind it, of knowing the other side and knowing the Narishkeit of the other side. That's what the dispute, that's what the dispute of the Gemara is all about. And that's a simple answer in terms of the supremacy or the aspect of supremacy that the Baal Tshuva has. And could be that in terms of reward, it's not so simple that in terms of reward, the mess that I made, I'm going to get a bigger reward for cleaning up. In rewards, Rabbi Yisrael Salanta says, if you were responsible for making the strife, so then it's not logical that you should get a bigger reward. So in, when we're talking about measuring it in rewards, so then we have, if, you know, who's, quote-unquote, who's, who's, who's going away with a greater reward? It's, it's not so simple. We have to keep Rabbi Yisrael Salanta's uh, thing in mind. But when we're talking about a certain aspect of supremacy that the Baal Tshuva has, there's no doubt that there is an aspect of supremacy that comes from the wisdom of, of that, of that, you know, of the experience. Since your whole life is a struggle to overcome your bad habits, whether you were religious from birth or whether you were uh, became religious later on. That's so. So where do you get some benefit for overcoming them, and where is it that it's your fault that you shouldn't have had the bad habits to begin with? Well, this, there, there are tendencies and things that, uh, that are all part of our natures or our backgrounds. And then there are things that we have to admit that we, we, we are self-developers. There are things that we develop ourselves. There things that, that we lean to naturally without any thinking. We just like those things or do those things because of our backgrounds. And then there's, there are things that with time we... You know, the appetite. You know that expression: with eating comes the appetite. Mm. There are certain things that we develop habits for. You know, um, you know, in the ultimate justice that a judgment that a person has to answer to uh, before Hashem, the the things that I I was not necessarily completely successful in that were a direct result of the of my natural tendencies. So to speak, I was born into 
are much more lenient judgments than the things that I'm going to have to answer for that I developed. In other words, to the things that I uh, responded to naturally, they were part of my tendency, sure, I should have overcome them, but, you know, I was born with these things and I didn't make them. The judgment of Hashem is more lenient in those areas than in the areas where I come with a whole mess in front of Hashem and, and Hashem says, this whole mess, you know, it had nothing to do with the way I made you. This is something that you worked on and you developed it and became a professional at. That, that, that there's a much stricter justice for because there I was a creator of, of, uh, of a lifestyle. I just thought they were interrelated. I mean, you know, you can see three-year-old kids who are lazy, and you can see adults who, like, over a long period of time, are lazy. That, you know, Every what person they is developed different. Which they were born with. <laughs> mm, it is possible to know. It is possible to know somewhat. Yeah. It, it is. Okay. We'll call it quits here. <laughs> Everybody have a wonderful Pesach. And again, for anybody that uh, walked in late, the next time we meet is the t- Wednesday the 29th. Um, I have a Shiloh. Um, my parents are coming in for the start, and we're staying in a hotel. Um, it's not a kosher hotel, so they want to kosher the um, kitchen here. Um, what the are kitchen we in the room, you mean? Yeah. Like, what are we responsible for exactly? Like, in other words, are we responsible for the chametz if we're renting or whatever? What do you call it? You know, we're, we're in the room in the hotel, right? Are we responsible for? Um, Where are you eating from? From the utensils of the room? No, no, no. They're bringing. We're bringing. Our, they're bringing their own pots and pans and everything like that. Okay. So now, what's the question? So, in terms of, um, let's say they don't, we don't want to kosher the oven or something. You don't have to. Just close it up. Just put close a piece it up. It's no problem. And there's no problem using the stove on top of it if we kosher that, if the oven underneath is no not. No problem. And the one other thing is um, there's a tray beneath the, you know, the grates, right? There's grates on the thing. There's a tray underneath. It's like, my father said about four inches below. And that, it, it has like trays on it and stuff like that. So, what do we, is is that um, a problem? It's you should clean it. You don't have to cash it. You should clean it. If it's, if you can't clean it, you should at least cover it well with silver foil. Yeah, because it's something you can't pull out. That's the problem. So then cover it as well as you can with silver foil. Oh, okay. Thank you. It's a good question. You, you haven't ever gotten any mail from us? No. Marvelous. It's pointing to my efficiency. <laughs> but you're on the list now. I know for a fact that you're on the list. Did you get the types? So this is, you got a cost price bill, if you could just send it straight to I them, really okay? You did send it to them? Of course, they gave me a cost price, they considered it to me. You yeah. mailed it to okay. them already? Okay, Okay. Yeah. Okay, so then I'll take that and I'll use it for a mailing, adri- mailing list. Improvising. <laughs> I remember when I was in the shoot, they were let me give a, a share. It was also a Mr. Share on this idea of unique 
uniqueness of Hashem. The way he like, but it was on the very basic. When the way he opened it up was, was that he asked the guys, "Is there anything that God cannot do?" And for the Shmuel boys, this was like, you know, what is there to get? What kind of? Of course, there's nothing that God right. cannot do. There's, there, is there? There is one thing that God cannot do. What is it? Nobody, you know.